Live from New York, I'm Christine Romans, sitting in for Julia Chatterley. Here's what you need to know. Markets are feeling the heat after two days of dismal data. Plus, getting the green light, the WTO says the U.S. can tariff the EU. And any minute now, the first witness in the House's impeachment inquiry into President Trump will arrive on Capitol Hill. It's Thursday, and this is First Move. Welcome to First Move. Glad to have you with us. Global markets remain unsettled this Thursday after two days of sharp losses and U.S. futures have been dipping in and out of positive territory in the past few hours. It's now looking like a flat to maybe higher open as we wait for some key U.S. economic data. Now, in the previous session, all the majors fell more than one and a half percent, building on a big drop, a one percent drop Tuesday. The blue chips hit the hardest with the Dow down almost two percent. You know, it was the first time the S&P 500 has posted back to back drops of one percent this year. Chalk that up to spillover angst from uh, Tuesday's weak U.S. manufacturing number. As we have pointed out many times on this program, it is services, not factories, that are the main drivers of the U.S. economy, making up some, what, 85 percent of economic activity. And we're expecting to see continued growth in services when a new report on non-manufacturing activity is released just about an hour from now. The big concern is if we see any hit that manufacturing weakness is spilling into services. Now, European shares trading mixed after suffering their worst single day of trading in almost a year yesterday. Not only has Europe been hit by the manufacturing slump, but key European industries from food to wine to airplanes will be hit with new U.S. tariffs as part of the Airbus subsidy battle. All this as U.S.-China trade talks are about to begin again. I'd say it's looking like a two-pronged trade war right now. Let's begin our drivers with a closer look at U.S. markets. Very glad to have Matt Egan uh, joining us here this morning. It looks like the, the market, at least in the U.S., is going to try to find its footing, but it's not a resounding bounce, it feels like, in markets, at least as futures are indicating. It, that, that's right, Christine. I mean, it's clear that October has really started with a growth scare, right? I mean, it looked like U.S. stocks were cruising along last month, maybe getting ready to hit new all-time highs. And then, boom, we had that really, really dreadful manufacturing report that came out on Tuesday, the worst month for U.S. factories since the end of the Great Recession. Now, all of a sudden, we've got the Dow down more than 800 points over two days. Um, oil prices have also gotten hit because, uh, obviously, oil needs strong demand, and, and those manufacturing numbers are, are suggesting that demand might be weakening here. And uh, also, you know, investors are going into the safety of government bonds. We've seen the 10-year Treasury move uh, sharply lower, back below 1.6%, uh, really dramatic move in just the past few days. So clearly, that manufacturing report has brought back those recession fears front and center. Now, as you mentioned, thankfully, consumer spending, which is really the big driver of growth, um, remains strong. And that's because unemployment is low and stock prices have been relatively high. Uh, but the risk is that the manufacturing trouble infects the rest of the economy through job cuts and market turmoil. So that's why I do think that we're going to see investors on high alert for any sort of uh, signal that there's been any spillover. And so there's got these two really big reports out in the next 24 hours. Um, you mentioned the U.S. services sector. Uh, that report at 10 a.m. New York time is supposed 
supposed to show um, a weakening of growth, um, but still expansion, unlike manufacturing, which is in contraction. And then, of course, the government jobs report um, tomorrow morning. And that could also be another big mover. So, Christine, you know, we've seen time and again where uh, sometimes bad news is sort of perversely looked at as good news by Wall Street because it might mean more easy money. I think it's safe to say we are not in one of those cases. I think uh, bad news would be bad news here. I'll be looking for manufacturing jobs in particular in that report tomorrow because uh, those have slowed down. Job growth and manufacturing has slowed down considerably over the past year. Quickly, Matt, there's a political angle here, too, uh, because you've got the president and his and his surrogates who are saying this is about a Democratic impeachment probe that is weighing on stock market investors, not on the president's own trade war, which has caused uncertainty in global trade. Uh, what are you hearing from sources uh, in the markets? Are they saying it's impeachment that's hurting stocks? or is it global trade and recession worries in manufacturing? This is all about the trade war and the economy. Yes, the impeachment brings in another level of uncertainty. And yes, it does have potential consequences for the 2020 election. But that really has not been the major driver in the past few days. I mean, there are times where sometimes it's a little un- unclear what's moving the market. But that was not the case this week. At 10 a.m. Tuesday morning, that ISM manufacturing report came out. Stocks went straight down. Bond yields yeah. went straight down. And uh, that really had nothing to do with impeachment at all. All right, Matt Egan, thank you. Nice to see you. Thank you. A lot going on this week. All right, in the next hour, the impeachment inquiry into the U.S. president picks up pace with crucial testimony. The former U.S. diplomat at the heart of the whistleblower complaint is due to arrive on Capitol Hill any moment now. Kurt Volker is his name. He is the former U.S. envoy to Ukraine, and he has just arrived, we're told, to tell his story behind closed doors in the coming hours. This is the big event uh, in Capitol Hill today. Suzanne Melveau is here to walk us through it. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Christine. Well, there is a lot of anticipation around this. And, of course, a lot of people have some an- some questions that they want answered from Kirk Volker. Uh, one of them, he has been named in the whistleblower complaint. Really, what were his discussions regarding uh, Giuliani's role in this? And also, what were his, what was his role as a, an interpreter, if you will, of the president's wishes to the Ukrainian president? And so all of that is going to be front and center. This really is a make or break moment for the Trump presidency. And this is day one. House Democrats eager to begin depositions as President Trump appears increasingly furious over their impeachment inquiry. Kurt Volker, former U.S. Special Envoy to Ukraine, will be deposed by three House committees about the whistleblower complaint, which alleges President Trump repeatedly pressured Ukraine to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son. I hope that he will be truthful and I hope that he will give Uh, those questioners and investigators the tools that they need to get to the bottom of this very pressing matter. Intelligence Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson will appear at a closed-door briefing tomorrow, which is also the deadline House Democrats have given the White House to submit documents related to the Ukraine phone call or face subpoenas. We're not fooling around here, though. Uh, We don't uh, want this to drag on months and months and months, which appears to be the administration's strategy. It comes after the State Department Inspector General gave lawmakers dozens of pages of documents that make many of the same unproven claims about the Bidens that Trump allies have been making. Congressman Jamie Raskin was the lone lawmaker to attend the briefing. It's essentially a packet of propaganda and disinformation spreading conspiracy theories. Those conspiracy theories have been widely debunked and discredited. The documents attempt to smear Joe Biden and former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. 
President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, told CNN some of the documents originated with him, and he then gave them to the White House. A source telling CNN the White House then passed them to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Why was Secretary of State Pompeo in possession of this packet of disinformation? It raises more questions than it answers. The president continuing to show his rage, sending this profane tweet, writing, The do-nothing Democrats should be focused on building up our country, not wasting everyone's time and energy on bullshit. Trump's tirade continuing offline, too. You look at the whistleblower statement, and it's vicious, vicious. To impeach a president over a fraud that was committed by other people that want to win an election in 2020, which they won't, is incredible. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying she thinks it's part of President Trump's strategy to divert attention. I think the president knows the argument that can be made against him, and he's scared. And Christine, now talking to one of the aides in the committee, the Intelligence Committee this morning, they say they're going to try to make it as bipartisan as possible to have both Republicans and Democrats asking the kinds of questions their staffers as well as well that Volcker can answer. And they are looking forward again to tomorrow. The Intelligence Committee Inspector General, who will be back before the committee, who is known and has said that he believes that the whistleblower complaint was credible and urgent. And of course, that critical deadline for the White House already, the uh, chair of the Oversight Committee, uh, Elijah Cummings, drafting that memo of the subpoena of the White House in case they do not produce the documents around that critical phone call, already making it very clear that if they do not cooperate, it's going to be part of an obstruction of justice charge. Christine. All right, Suzanne Melvo on Capitol Hill for us. Another busy day for you, Suzanne. Thank you so much for that. All right. The WTO has approved U.S. tariffs on seven and a half billion dollars worth of EU exports. We're talking Scotch whiskey, French wine, Italian cheese are all affected. This is part of a long running dispute over subsidies given to Airbus. Anna Stewart is with me now. And this is a win for the White House, a win 10 or 15 years in the making here. Tell us about it. It's been an incredibly long-running dispute, as you say, 15 years. And so it didn't take long for the U.S. administration to announce that it will be imposing tariffs. And it's selected from a list that was actually a draft list published earlier this year. Um, it had $25 billion worth of goods. So it's selected from that. And it's really interesting to see what's on there. You mentioned British cashmere, Scotch whiskey, German waffles and wafers, a whole load of products. And this will really hurt some European businesses, particularly small ones like those cheesemakers, the Parmesan maker in Italy, the Emmental maker in Switzerland. Many of those are reliant on exports, and the U.S. is a huge market for them. Um, we won't have long to find out whether it really does dip consumer demand for some of these businesses. These will take effect October 18th. You're showing some beverage companies there that are actually up. It could have been worse, right, Anna? Yes, look at those. So you've got Pano Ricard and... Uh, and Remy Quantro there. Now, what's so interesting is the fact that what, it's not just what's on the list of tariffs, it's what's not on there. It's quite nuanced. They have missed a few products out that people did expect to be on there. Also, Christine, they could actually have imposed, the US could have imposed 100% tariffs on those $7.5 billion. Instead, it was 10% on planes. It was 25% on food and drinks. Why? Well, there's the, there's the point that there could be retaliatory tariffs from the EU on the US side of things next year. There is a parallel case about Boeing, so the WTO will rule on that next year. But also, Christine, 
Analysts today are steering us towards the political side of things, stateside, saying that already the tariffs waged on Chinese goods are becoming more consumer focused. They're going to start to hurt the U.S. consumer more, particularly those being implemented in December. And as a result, perhaps they don't want to escalate that too much, too much further, particularly ahead, of course, the election next year. Christine, they could have put 100 percent tariffs on seven and a half billion dollars worth of EU goods. And instead, you've got 10 percent rates and 25 percent rates. So maybe the U.S. administration is being very strategic here not to let the U.S. Mm -hmm. consumer feel this right away, but take the political win for the win of the WTO. All right, Anna Stewart, thank you so much. Nice to see you. Uh, These are the stories making headlines around the world. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has presented his latest Brexit proposal to Parliament. He said his government has made a genuine attempt to bridge the chasm between the UK and the EU on the issue of the Irish border. Opposition leaders uh, say the, the plans are unworkable and the European Union response seems less than enthusiastic. Hadass Gold joins me now. What's what's in the proposal here? Well, Christine, this proposal, we've been talking for weeks that they that we have not yet seen from the new UK government, the new UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. What are his actual plans that are different than Theresa May's plans to get this Brexit done? Now we know he submitted these plans last night, and these are all about Northern Ireland and to prevent a hard border between Northern Ireland, which will stay part of the United Kingdom, and the Republic of Ireland, which will be part of the EU. Now, in this proposal, Northern Ireland will actually stay in the single market, but will be out of the customs unions. But Boris Johnson has said that he will prevent any sort of hard border, any sort of new infrastructure on a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland because, of course, of the Good Friday Agreement. He said there will be no checks on or near the border. Instead, there will be electronic checks and other checks somewhere in the supply in the supply line, and that their goal is to always abide by that Good Friday Agreement and to keep the peace along the border. Take a listen to what he said in Parliament just in the past couple hours. There will be no need for checks or any infrastructure at or near the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Indeed, I have already given a guarantee that the UK government will never conduct checks at the border, and we believe that the EU should do the same. So there is absolute clarity on that point. And, Christine, this new plan will essentially create, although they won't perhaps be real borders with fences and guard posts, but two borders between the north and south and the east and west of Northern Ireland. It will treat Northern Ireland differently, and Boris Johnson says will give them some authority over their own future because the Northern Ireland Assembly will be able to review this and approve it every four years. But... There is a little wrench in this plan. The Northern Ireland Assembly actually hasn't been sitting for the past two years. Unclear how that will play into all of this. We are getting some reaction. Uh, The Prime Minister of Ireland didn't seem too enthusiastic about this. The European Commission is having their own lukewarm reaction to this. And then, of course, there is the opposition parties in the UK who say this is not a proper deal, that it violates the Good Friday Agreement, and it's only part of Johnson's plan to make the UK crash out without a deal. Christine. Just another chapter in what has been a Brexit mess. When when will there be a vote? When will there be a resolution? Well, right now, it seems there could be a vote actually after the next European Council meeting that would place a vote around October 21st. We do not have a firm date on that yet. But as of right now, if you're doing some of the sort of on the back of the envelope counting, the government right now does possibly have a slim but shaky majority to potentially get this through. Of course, we are still waiting to get an official reaction from the European Union on whether they would even accept this. And there is a fear that if Boris Johnson in any way sort of moves more towards Brussels and what Brussels wants, then he could potentially lose that shaky and slim majority. All right, had asked gold for us uh, this morning. Thank you so much for that. 
Thank you. All right. In other news, four people have died in a knife attack inside a police headquarters in Paris. According to a police union source, the attacker, who was a police employee, was also killed. The police union secretary told local media the attacker had been with them for over 20 years. The area has been sealed off. Curfews are in place in Baghdad and other cities across Iraq following two days of violent demonstrations, which killed 15 people and injured more than 850 There's growing discontent at long power outages, unemployment, government corruption. Authorities have shut down three-quarters of the country's Internet, according to a monitoring service. All right, coming up on First Move, Pepsi Pops. The soft drinks company fizzles, fizzes, rather, on earnings the opposite of fizzles. The CFO, CFO joins us after this short break. All right, welcome back to First Move. Let's take another check at the markets right now. It's still looking like a U.S. market that's trying to find its footing. Stocks after two days of sharp losses. The Dow is now down 3.1% for the fourth quarter. That's the worst start to a quarter in over a decade. You know, stocks could get a boost from a strong read on the U.S. services sector. We're expecting that report within the hour. And, of course, that big September jobs report is due out tomorrow. We're also hearing quarterly earnings coming in here. Pepsi reported third quarter revenue and profit better than Wall Street had expected. This, as the soft drink company's advertising push seems to be paying off, a range of new products for health-conscious shoppers also boosting sales. Joining me right now is Hugh Johnson, Pepsi's uh, chief financial officer. Welcome to the broadcast. First of all, what was going right, I guess, for Pepsi in this quarter? Thank you, Christine, and good morning. Uh, a lot of things are going right, quite candidly. Uh, our beverage business is, has seen uh, a significant turnaround of performance over the last couple of quarters and continues to accelerate in North America. And in addition to that, our, our free-to-lay business is really firing on, on most, if not all, cylinders at this point. Uh, we, as you mentioned, have increased advertising significantly over year, uh, and consumers are, are responding to that advertising, which has resulted in stronger growth for us and for our customers. So we feel terrific about where we're going. We think our strategy is working. What about these more health-conscious uh, categories? Well, I, I think we have a lot of product offerings in those categories as well. We have a, an enormous number of beverage products that, that fall into the lower zero-calorie zero category. And from a snacking perspective, we also have a, a variety of products that are, that are lower-calorie and, and have an ingredient portfolio that's quite attractive to consumers. So as we look at our, our approach right now, uh, we want to offer a broad array of products when consumers want to eat uh, healthy and clean. We have those products. When consumers want to indulge in, uh, in perhaps a, a bit more caloric product, we're there for them as well. So I think our, our role is to provide that good balanced offering, and then consumers will choose when they want to eat healthy and when they want to indulge. You talk about the broad, the broad uh, offering of the product uh, of the products, but what does it say about the American consumer? I mean, you guys really are literally have your your fingers on the pulse of the American consumer for so many of these different products. What are you seeing there? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there, there's a lot of discussion these days around the the state of the the American consumer, both from a, a spending perspective and from a habits perspective. Uh, from what we can see right now, the American consumer is actually doing quite well, uh, and that's obviously supporting our sales growth. Uh, we do see a trend over time to lower calorie products, and frankly, that that plays generally quite well to us because uh, we have a broad array of products in the lower calorie area. So. But mostly the consumer, as far as we can tell, uh, is willing to spend 
when they see a product that offers them a, a terrific value proposition and it's advertised well and it's marketed well and it comes at them at a good price. Well, let's talk about it internationally as well. You know, we've had a strong dollar here, and it's something a lot of companies with, with uh, you know, big multinational companies have been, have been noting. How has the strong dollar played into sales for you? Well, I, I would tell you internationally our businesses are, are really doing quite well. Uh, developing and emerging markets were up uh, about 7% for us across the globe. Uh, China was up double digits. Mexico was up double digits. Uh, India was up high single digits, to name three of our bigger markets uh, outside the United States. Uh, obviously, as, as we translate those earnings back into the United States, the, the strong dollar uh, does have a slight negative impact. It's, uh, it was about a point in the quarter, and uh, the overall for, for the year is about two points. Uh, but frankly, there's so much consumption growth out there that we're happy to invest and play into those markets because we think those represent a terrific future for PepsiCo and extend the duration of our performance. I mean, when I look at the street, the last two or three quarters, you've you've uh, you've over delivered. Right. I mean, they've been very happy with these results. The stock is up nicely this year. It's indicated to be higher this morning. What's the risk then? What's the risk for Pepsi at this point? I, frankly, I, I, I don't know that we're, we're a high-risk type of a stock. Uh, investors, I think, typically look at consumer products and specifically as PepsiCo as, as more of a defensive stock. So I, I think for us, our, our focus needs to be on continuing to invest in the operating side of the business and with that investment driving good growth and good returns out of it. And for investors, we think that's a valuable part of their portfolio. And so far, they've rewarded us with, uh, with purchases of our shares. So we certainly feel good about that. Can we expect the advertising push to continue? I mean, that was, uh, I think, what advertising spending up 12 percent this year. Will that continue? Yeah, you're going to see us continue to invest in advertising. I mean, we, we certainly are seeing good returns on that. I don't know that it'll be quite at the double-digit level that it's at right now, but we're certainly going to continue to invest in advertising because uh, we think consumers are responding well to it, and it's having the right impact on our sales. All right, Pepsi beating estimates there uh, for the quarter. Hugh Johnston, thank you so much for joining us, the CFO of Pepsi. Thank you, sir. All right, 20, Thank you, we've got uh, market opening in just a little under four minutes. Uh, stay with First Move. The opening bell will be next. When we come back, futures indicated a little bit higher here. There it is. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Christine Romans. That was the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange on this third day of October. U.S. stocks trying to find their footing in early trading today uh, and having a little bit of trouble here. The, the bulls are hoping to claw back some of the pretty steep losses of the past couple of days. This has been the worst start to a quarter on Wall Street in years. Why? Well, concerns about weak manufacturing in the U.S. and what is now turning into a two-pronged U.S. trade war with both Europe and China. Now, amid this steep sell-off, it's still important to note, note that most of the major averages are still holding on to solid gains for the year. And the Nasdaq and S&P are still up about 15 percent, and the S&P 500 
really not very far from all-time highs. Meantime, U.S. 10-year Treasury yields are down for a sixth straight session, but gold prices in the U.S. dollar are a bit lower in trading today. Uh, oil down for an eighth straight session. Let's get more on the markets now. I'm joined by Alan Ruskin. He's the chief international strategist at Deutsche Bank. And markets having a, a little bit of difficulty finding their footing here. This is really a trade story, a trade anxiety uh, and manufacturing story. Are, are, they, are they overdoing it here? Um, not necessarily. I think we need to see where this all ends. Um, there's some natural cyclical slowdown, I think, that's occurring just as uh, the fiscal expansionary influence that we saw in the prior two years is, I think, starting to wane. So I think that's a, a bit of a factor over and beyond what's going on in, on, the, on the trade side. And then, of course, the global growth story has been deteriorating for quite a while, led in the most part by China. So there are a few other things going on. Well, so let me ask you this, because the president and his surrogates yesterday and again early today have been out with this storyline that this is because of impeachment and political pressure from Democrats, not because of any concerns about global trade and in specific, and specifically the trade war the U.S. has with China. Uh, is that correct? I think uh, most uh, participants would say there's some elements in which politics is starting to intercede in terms of having an impact on, on the marketplace. Um, it's a minimum should create uncertainties, particularly as you get towards the election next year. I think there's a sense that you've had investment uh, both globally and in the United States extremely weak. And that uh, with that additional political uncertainty, that's going to still be weak uh, you know, in, in addition. So uh, I think the manufacturing sector is going to struggle if the investment sector is going to remain soft. Yeah. And I'll be looking into the jobs report tomorrow to see if there's still very weak growth in, in manufacturing employment. That's been something we've been watching all year. The WTO, meantime, ruling in favor of the United States and awarding uh, essentially seven and a half billion dollars worth of, of, of EU goods that the U.S. can put tariffs on at 100 percent. Now, the U.S. has only put tariffs on at 10 percent, 25 percent on some of these categories. But what do you make of this uh, WTO ruling, this win for the U.S. and how it complicates the trade war? I don't think it necessarily complicates a trade war too much, uh, as long as the U.S. doesn't uh, proceed really with uh, uh, pushing ahead on auto tariffs that you know comes up at the middle of November. I think were the U.S. to open up that front, uh, you know, that would be a more fulsome uh, trade war with Europe, and I think that would be very, very negative uh, as far as the manufacturing is concerned. What's the appropriate reaction for the Fed at this point, do you think, if we're watching a manufacturing sector uh, that, is, uh, that looks to be under the weather, if you, if you believe two months of the ISM uh, manufacturing report, uh, you know, but still a consumer that remains very, very solid in this country? What's the appropriate path for the Fed in your view? I think the path that the Fed's laid out, at least, is that uh, they're very data dependent. Um, that can sometimes look a little bit amateurish because you get swung around by one data point. But, uh, for example, Friday's employment data is extremely important. I think if you do see, you know, say, numbers in the private employment side below 100,000 uh, new jobs, uh, that would be seen as a further sign that the broader economy, not just in the manufacturing sector, is indeed slowing down. And I think it would secure an October rate cut. I think you're, you're looking uh, at more than the one rate cut that the Fed's have, uh, uh, that's the FOMC's uh, dot plot has suggested is most likely. 
The Fed doesn't have very much room to move, though. I mean, overall, you still have an economy that's running at 2 percent, an unemployment rate that's near the lowest in a generation. I mean, there's sort of this this weird position they're in when um, they don't really have a lot more to move if you really do get some kind of a crisis in the economy. Uh, that's right. So I think the issue first is, is the economy growing at 2%? Uh, if it is, then the Fed doesn't have to do very much. Uh, it's you know, probably slowing a little bit beyond that. I think the underlying growth rates now dip maybe more towards, say, 1.5%. So that would push the Fed to do something. I think what you've seen so far is that the bond market has front-loaded a lot of the Fed easing. So um, that's good news in the sense that it will soften and at least cushion some of the negative effects on trade and global growth. But I think going forward, it does mean that the Fed is going to not have the same sort of traction uh, that they might have been otherwise expected to have. We know that a Chinese delegation is expected to come to the U.S. to do another round of, of, of trade talks with the U.S. What do you think is the most likely scenario here that, that maybe it doesn't get any worse or that there's some sort of symbolic win for the U.S. or that there's a real comprehensive trade agreement? What is the most likely scenario? Yeah, I think a comprehensive trade agreement is, is pretty tough to achieve. I think China has certain red lines, uh, and I think that's going to be tough uh, for the U.S. to compromise on you know, things like, uh, for example, putting the intellectual property rights changes into Chinese law, etc. I think China is going to ask for re- reciprocity. I think you know, what is more likely is some sort of uh, mini deal, perhaps, where China uh, maybe uh, buys more agricultural goods. Uh, that helps the president enormously. Uh, and then the president would have to compromise on uh, issues on technology in particular and Huawei. And then they can pretty much keep you know, tariffs where they are. Uh, we don't go through the increase in tariffs in the middle of December. That would be pretty negative for the U.S. consumer side of things. Yeah. And that could be the makings of some sort of deal. All right, Alan Ruskin, Chief International Strategist at Deutsche Bank. Nice to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, the global movers, Costco up slightly. The retail giant reports earnings after the bell uh, tonight. Costco's shares are up more than 30 percent this year. Analysts expect strong numbers on same-store sales. Pepsi also up. The soft drinks giant reported revenue and profit better than Wall Street expected. That is an advertising push and a new range of healthier options boosted sales. And Tesla trading down today. The electric car company delivered fewer cars than Wall Street expected in the third quarter. Deliveries rose by only 2 percent. Claire Sebastian joins me now. And Claire, that uh, on that Tesla deliveries number in particular, what's going on there? Yeah, so I think this is this is partly the curse of high expectations, Christine. The, uh, the stock rallied quite significantly last week when a letter from Elon Musk uh, to staff was published where he said they had a shot at 100,000 deliveries uh, in this quarter. They were really ramping up towards the end of the quarter, something that we've seen multiple times from Tesla to try and meet that, and, and they didn't. They, they got 97,000, which, you know, is a record, but, but again, below what people were expecting. But, you know, if you talk to analysts, it's still a pretty solid number. They are, uh, they are seeing kind of this is a step in the right direction. But still big questions, Christine, uh, over whether they can meet their targets for the year. They'll have to accelerate to do that. And whether they can return to profitability in the third or fourth quarter of this year. Tesla says uh, they are targeting uh, positive net income in the third quarter. I think some analysts are skeptical as to whether they're going to be able to do that. Don't forget the, the cars they're selling the most of are the Model 3, which are the cheaper, lower margin cars. You say analysts are skeptical. They, they have a lot of reason to be skeptical because Elon Musk has not delivered several times on um, some of his best boasts about this company. 
you know, this is yeah, this is something that we've that we've seen. And again, you know, the, the, you see a divided analyst community uh, on Tesla. Many people simply take a leap of faith and say this uh, is the future and, and this is where we want to have our money. And people have uh, wildly different price targets, uh, for example, Christine, uh, on this story. But there's another challenge that the company is now facing. They just released a new software update for uh, for their cars last week. And it includes a feature called Smart Summons, which basically allows you to, to use an app on your phone to bring your car to you to essentially pick you up in a parking lot or a driveway. So, 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 so what that means is the car is driving with no one in it. And you can see here uh, that it hasn't always worked very well. There have been a lot of uh, reports on social media, including this Twitter user. You can see him bringing the car towards him. Uh, and there's a near miss. So this, uh, you know, there's been a lot of jokes on social media, but serious point for Tesla. And we know that the National uh, Highway Traffic Safety Administration uh, is aware of these reports uh, and looking into it. Fascinating. I can't take my eyes off that video. All right. Thanks so much for that, Claire Sebastian. Nice to see you. All right. Coming up on First Move, roadblocks for GM as the company feels the strain of its worker strike. Stay with CNN. General Motors set to take a $600 million hit to profits. That's according to an estimate from a, a consulting firm. That hit traces back to when United Auto Workers' uh, strike began in mid-September. 9,000 workers have been affected as union action now uh, stretches into its third week. Vanessa Yurkovich joins me. Vanessa. Hey there, Christine. Yeah, you pointed out some big numbers there. GM really taking a hit now that they're in their third week. Some of those numbers, as you said, $600 million in loss of profits by the end of this week. Now, there's also the losses to workers. We're looking at about $412 million for lost wages for union members, non-union members, and suppliers. And we're also learning from GM about the ripple effect. It's not just these striking workers off the job. It's now temporary temporary layoffs from GM, about 9,225. You see that number right there. That is in the U.S., Canada, and in Mexico. So as these numbers start to come out, we're starting to also learn what we could see next week. That group that you mentioned, Anderson Economic Group, is projecting that if this stretches, Christine, into next week, that'll be the fourth week, we're looking at losses for GM at about $90 million a day. That will put their total losses well into over a billion dollars, Christine. And, you know, it's fascinating because Mary Barra, the CEO of this company and union leaders both have a common anxiety here, and that is transforming this company into a company that compete with the kind of car car universe we're going to see in the not too distant future, electric in particular. Uh, and there's anxiety among the workers about what that future looks like for them and anxiety among, you know, GM management because they've got to execute this strategy quickly and as efficiently as possible. Right, Christine. You know, this contract will ultimately set a new standard for the industry. We know that some of the sticking points between UAW and GM are still a lot of the sticking points that we heard a couple weeks ago. It's that the UAW wants to bring some of those jobs back from Mexico to the United States. We also know that they want greater profit sharing from the company, and they also want a road path for their temporary workers so that they can potentially become full-time workers eventually. With 
with the company. And Christine, it's the beginning of the month. This is when Americans start paying their bills. A lot of these workers on strike are only making $250 a week from the strike fund. That presumably is not a lot of money to be covering some of these bills that these GM workers are now staring down as we enter, uh, as we're in the third week of this strike. Christine. All right. Vanessa Yurkevich on the GM story, continuing to follow that for us. Thank you so much for that. All right. Here's today's boardroom brief. The EU's top court has ruled that Facebook should remove hate speech content in some cases. The European Court of Justice says it must comply and pull the content down worldwide if it's deemed illegal. Facebook argued the ruling threatens freedom of expression. Shares in British fashion retailer Ted Baker are down 30 Three percent. The company is warning its weak, uh, already miserable financial performance may worsen over the rest of the year. It's blaming increased competition by its rivals and unseasonably warm weather. Shares of the H&M department store chain are sharply higher in Stockholm trading. The Swedish-based firm reported its first profit rise in more than two years. It says its turnaround strategy is gaining traction. H&M shares have risen more than 50 percent this year on turnaround hopes. Right, the saying goes, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but this isn't the case for Chipotle, which seems to have energy without serving breakfast. It's currently one of the best S&P for performers for the year. Instead, the fast food company is dining on tech. Think ordering your next meal with just your voice. I spoke to Chipotle's CEO on the CNN Business live event series, The Table. We've got some restaurants where 40% of the business is being done digitally, uh, but right now we're just below 20%. And you know, I, I think it could easily be 40, 50% of the you business. So? What other kind of tech innovations are you guys working on right now? I mean, you've done so many in just 18 months. You know? Yeah, we've been busy. Uh, you know, I mean, we're we're introducing some voice uh, now, so you'll see us be doing stuff with like the Alexas and the Google uh, Dots, where you'll be able to order Chipotle through voice, um, and that's really the next thing we're working on. He's really the turnaround artist there. You know, a couple of years ago, this was a company that was mired in an E. coli scandal, a food safety scandal, uh, and now sales are up. And he considers this company as much a burrito chain as a lifestyle and tech company. That's the way they look at it. So a lot of changes coming there to Chipotle. All right. Any moment now, we expect to see the U.S. president leaving the White House. This is a key player in the complaint against him arrives on Capitol Hill to tell his story. We're live in Washington. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Christine Romans in for Julia Chatterley just for today. Uh, you know, any moment now, the U.S. president leaves the White House for Florida. It will be the first time he has seen in public since two explosive appearances and a series of tweets in which he vented his anger at the impeachment inquiry uh, on Wednesday. On Capitol Hill, the investi- investigation continues to pick up pace. The Trump administration's former envoy to Ukraine is currently testifying behind closed doors. He is, of course, a key figure in the whistleblower complaint against this president. Uh, very pleased to have Brian Stelter join me right now, Brian. And, and I, hey. I just think that performance or reaction or appearance by the president in front of the cameras with the president of Finland really needs to be scrutinized because that was a president as we have not seen him yet in these rollicking past three years. 
yes, we have seen him uh, angry in the past, but this was a new level. This was a new volume. Uh, if he's been at 10 in the past, now he's at 12 or 13. And I think this is important because we are seeing how the pressure of this formal impeachment inquiry is getting to him, uh, how it's affecting him. You know, whenever we're going through a political process like this, you think about what is being lost, what is being missed, what, what work is not getting done, what policies are not being uh, moved forward. Uh, the president is clearly consumed by this impeachment inquiry and by what he believes uh, is a political attack by the Democrats. And he is spreading so much disinformation and, uh, and, and propaganda, really, at this point, that it's hard for the press and the public to keep up. Uh, and I think that's going to be an ongoing story in the days ahead. Every time he's in front of the cameras, he comes up with a new way to attack the whistleblower, to smear the process, yeah. and to suggest that a legal impeachment process is actually an illegal coup. What I saw was a, a surplus of fury and a deficit of facts. It's almost mm. as if when the president is cornered, and he is cornered by Democrats who are, who are saying they want to be very focused, they want to be efficient, they want to be very careful and clear on their impeachment inquiry. And this is a president who feels cornered and blames the press, blames the Democrats, and, and, and makes things up. And I think the, the rule of thumb that I always apply or the question I always ask is, what would we say if we saw this in another country? Right? We're speaking with viewers around the world right now. Uh, they know full well uh, what autocratic countries look like, what dictators, uh, how dictators act. Now, the president of the United States is the leader of a democracy, uh, and he was promoting democracy yesterday, saying we have a very healthy democracy in the U.S. But his behavior, his attitudes, his conduct, his treatment of the press and his opponents, you know, that is the kind of thing that would shock people if it's happening in any other country. I think that that kind of question just applies really well on a week like this, when he does seem to be spiraling into a worse situation. Now, look, every day is different. It's going to be interesting to see how he's doing it from a very friendly audience, talking about a, pol a policy issue today, talking about Medicare. I'm curious to see if he ends up going back to his witch hunt rhetoric uh, or if he actually stays on message today. I will say, um, having been a young reporter in the beginning of the uh, of the Bill Clinton presidency or, or the second term, actually, the Bill Clinton presidency, when he was going through impeachment, that team stayed very focused on mm. policy and the process of the presidency and kept the impeachment stuff separate. I don't see that uh, here. Right. Right. There is no coordinated plan, it seems, from the White House. There's been a lot of press lately saying there's no war room. There's no messaging war room. Well, I think the president has a war room. It's called Fox News. He has these primetime hosts and stars on Fox who are defending him no matter what. If that starts to change, if that starts to break, if that firewall starts to break, then he could be in more serious trouble. Right now, he has his defenders, but most Americans see through it. It is striking how in the polls we're seeing more and more support for impeachment. All right, Brian Stelter, so nice to see you. Thank you so much for you your guidance Thanks. as we follow this rollicking, rollicking bonkers sort of story in Washington. Uh, many Republicans in the U.S. Congress have been silent about President Trump's phone call with Ukraine's leader, but not the Kremlin. Uh, Russia's president thinks that call was just fine. Vladimir Putin even jokes he'll interfere with next year's U.S. election. CNN's Fred Plykin reports from Moscow. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Tonight, Russian President Vladimir Putin trolling the United States, joking about meddling in the presidential election and saying he'll do it again. I'll tell you a secret. Yes, of course we'll do it, to finally make you happier. Just don't tell anyone. Putin also backing the demands of some in Washington to see further transcripts of President Donald Trump's interactions with other world leaders including the Putin summit in Helsinki last year. 
When there were attempts to launch a scandal regarding my meeting with Trump in Helsinki, we directly told the administration to just publish it. If somebody wants to know something, just publish it. We don't mind. But Vladimir Putin also echoing President Trump's talking points on the now infamous Ukrainian phone call. They began this impeachment proceeding and always bring up Nixon. Nixon's team was wiretapping their rivals. But this is a completely different situation. Trump was wiretapped. Some anonymous special service staffer leaked this information, and based on what we know from the call, there was nothing wrong there. Trump asked his colleague to investigate possible corruption schemes of previous administrations. With the congressional Democrats turning up the heat and polls showing a growing number of Americans supporting impeachment proceedings, the Kremlin has shown President Trump that he can count on Vladimir Putin to be in his corner. Fred Plaitkin, CNN, Moscow. All right, that's it for the show. Uh, thanks for watching. I'm Christine Romans. Uh, connect your world. Connect the world with Becky Anderson starts right after this short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.